Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. All right. Um, I don't know about you. It's been a fairly heavy week. Would you agree? Um, I thought it was heavy when they released the 300-page report about sexual abuse in the SBC and the covering up and all of that. Then obviously, Texas happened. And um, as God's people, it's just so hard to know sometimes how best to respond. Because, you know, after a gun tragedy, the responses are entirely predictable, correct? We rehearse them every time there's a gun tragedy. And I get so, um, I despair sometimes of any progress. There has to be some common sense way to go from they're going to take our guns to not doing anything. There has to be some, something there somewhere where we can at least make progress. And, and so my heart feels heavy. My son, Seth, is in sixth grade. And uh, just imagining him in a scenario like that, and even as the details come out, it is such a grievous, grievous thing. So this morning, we just want to lament. And lament doesn't mean be passive. Um, that's one very important thing. Lament is we take our complaints to God. God, why do you allow this? God, please restrain evil. God, please move upon our leaders to do something. God, we grieve. We just simply grieve. So we sit and lament before God, and we just grieve the state of our fallen world. But the thing about biblical lament is very often God will look at his image bearers and say, well, all right, I hear you. Let's get to work. Uh, so it's not a passive thing. It's part of our partnership with God in, in helping to bring about the kingdom of God as it is in heaven on earth. And so I just want to give us a few moments to sit in the space of grieving and confusion or despairing or whatever. And, um, and just to go before the Lord however you would like and just express how it is that you're feeling. To pray that God would then uh, act decisively, and that he might act through the people who are actually asking for him to act. And so in praying a lament prayer, there is a uh, receipt of a commission to be an answer to part of the, the prayer that we were praying. So uh, I just want to give us a few moments. We did this tragically a couple of weeks ago after the Buffalo shooting. We'll do it again, and we'll do it after every, I mean, it's just tragic that we have to do this again. Oh. So Father, would you receive our silence, the cries of our hearts, our laments? Lord, we simply hate that we live in a world where this is taking place. We cannot imagine the anguish of the families who were rushing to the school to find out whether their children were alive or not. Father, we pray uh, that, that, that some courageous people would step forward with wisdom and ingenuity to, to break through the impasse and the solidified positions on this. And we pray that, that as a church community, we would be people who grieve with those who grieve. 
And we would be people who tell the truth and who act as a prophetic counter-narrative to the ways our world thinks and lives. So to that end, God, we're just going to take a few moments of quiet. Would you hear our prayers? So Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these families, the families of those wounded, the police officers, the, the community, all of the division. Father, that you bring healing. Father, we volunteer as a community, not just to deal with the darkness in our own hearts, but to be agents of reconciliation. And so, Father, to that end, would you fill us with your spirit? And would you shape us into Jesus? More and more, we pray. Amen. Amen. I am um, compelled by pastor code to tell you that I am tragically sick today so that any heresy preached will be immediately attributed to the virus. Okay? Which virus? At this point, it feels like all of them, like all the viruses right now indwelling my habitation, my earthly tent, as we say. So um, anyway, stay away. No post-sermon handshakes. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to. I'll do hugs, too, but that's on you. All right, you've been duly warned. And, um, and let's, go, let's go really simple, easy questions today. All right, like, who's your favorite football team? You know, what do you like most about summer? Let's just go there. Now, if you're new to our community, you need to know that we are fans of wrestling through the text together. And so um, we are just so grateful to have a community of doubters and seekers and askers and people who are curious. And so if you have any questions, please feel free to interrupt is the point. And if you'd rather not do that publicly, there is uh, a text line you can text your questions to. And, um, and there it is, ladies and gentlemen. Today we're going we're gonna to move into the final act of the Sermon on the Mount. I know you're, you're just delighted and thrilled. I want to remind you way back in January that Jesus, in Matthew's account, comes along and he's preaching the reality of the kingdom of heaven being available here and now. And as we said at the point, and so we've repeated, kingdom of heaven isn't something that exists in the future. The kingdom of heaven is something that exists now that Jesus was inaugurating a new kind of, um, um, and this is foggy brain, uh, uh, accessibility to. That what Jesus was saying is the kingship of God that Israel has yearned for ever since Adam and Eve, you know, chose to eat the frozen, the frozen fruit. The, <laughs> oh, what was I trying to say? The forbidden fruit. All right, I'm so glad I told you I was sick. I'm so glad. <laughs> the frozen, yes. If it were not frozen, it would have been fine. But the fact that it was frozen was the issue. So the fact that they <laughs> ate the forbidden fruit introduced a counter kingdom into God's good world. And so the people of God have been yearning and crying out ever since then, when will God become king again over the earth? And so Jesus is announcing in his person, in his ministry, in his work, that is indeed happening. But what does that mean exactly? And so the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's five, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 
That is an explication of the, re, of the implications of what it means that the kingdom has come. The kingdom reverses everything. And you realize that, wow, we've been thinking that the great people are the ones who are rich and famous and powerful, and it turns out, oh, no, no, the great people are the ones who are meek and poor in spirit. Those are the people who are hungry for God and who are merciful. And then Jesus commissions those people, that mess of of weak and not at all religiously expert people. He commissions them to be salt and light and gives to them the commission that was given to Israel. And then he begins to critique the understanding of what it is to be right with God and part of this new movement. And he contrasts it with what the Pharisees had been saying. And so very famously in chapter five, he says, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees or you will not see the kingdom of heaven, which was shocking. But what does it mean to have a greater righteousness? Does that mean instead of 1,400 commandments, we obey 1,401? Is that what he means by greater? And the answer is no. Greater, for for the mind of Jesus, is internal. It's from the heart. It's not enough just to go around saying, hey, I haven't, you know, committed adultery yet. Jesus, the kingdom have hit, the righteousness of his kingdom deals with Lust. It's not enough just to not go around murdering, but the righteousness of his kingdom deals with anger and contempt. Not only that, but he says that the Pharisees, at least the ones he was uh, addressing, often did their acts of righteousness publicly in order to be seen. And so he commends to us acts of righteousness, and if we're seen, fine, but we don't do them in order to be seen. He commends that we do them in secret, and God will reward us. But speaking of rewards... There are two ways to live life. You can treasure the things of the earth or you can treasure the things of the heaven. And he he goes on to identify a very deep threat to our discipleship, which which is the God mammon. It's not just money wealth, but it's anything that gives us security in life. And now what he's doing is he's addressing one of the one of the most tragic sins of the Pharisees, and that is the sin of judgment. The Pharisees would simply, the Pharisees engaged in a calculus to determine who was worthy and who was not. And they had labels for everybody and boxes. And so Jesus runs afoul of those all the time. Why did you, why, Jesus, why do you eat with sinners? That was a category of person. It wasn't like sinner, hey, we're all sinners. It was like, no, no, that was a specific group of people who did not live up to the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So we're in Matthew chapter six, ladies and gentlemen. That was all background Please correct my grammar in your heads. Matthew chapter 6. Nope, Matthew chapter 7 is what I was saying. Matthew chapter 7. Ladies and gentlemen, you know how they used to do like, this is your brain, and this is your brain on drugs? I'm feeling like that right now. Matthew 7. And, and you know, here we go. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay. Now, judge here is interesting. There's a parallel statement in Luke where Jesus sort of qualifies what he means by judging. He says, do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven, Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, Sarah, if you would, go back to uh, Matthew 7. 
So let's talk about this for just a little bit. Um, Do not judge or you will be judged. Now, judge is a word that's used in two different ways. Sometimes it's used as a good thing. Sometimes it's used as a bad thing. For instance, here are examples of bad. Right? Go ahead, punch through these if you would, Sarah. There is only one law, giver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to what? Judge your neighbor, right? We've already got one. We don't need you, is the idea. Romans 14, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servant, stand or fall. Next. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? We will all stand before God's judgment seat. Next. I care very little if I am judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I do not judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing until the appointed time when the Lord comes. Next. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. So just on the basis of those texts, already John on fire five minutes in. Yes, John. Okay, great question. John asked, where do we see the boundary between like calling out something in a brother or sister? And guess what? That's what this whole sermon is about. So not only do you get points for the first question, you get points for anticipating the entire sermon. It was a softball. Thank you. That's how we do it, ladies and gentlemen. Easy questions. Yes, exactly right. All right. Perfect. Now, there are other places where judge, judging is commended to us. For instance, John, stop judging by mere appearances. Instead, judge correctly. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Dear friends, do not believe any, uh, every spirit, but test the spirits, which implies judgment, to see whether they are from God. Next. Watch out for false prophets. We're going to look at this text in a couple of weeks, right? The implication is that you're looking and discerning. Next, because of their fruit, you will recognize them. Is there one more, Sarah? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone um, who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, so you have two classes of texts. Some texts that say, and pretty harshly, who are you to judge your neighbor? And then other places that are like, hey, you're supposed to judge the fruit of somebody or you're supposed to judge correctly. And the answer, dear John, anticipating this perfectly, um, is in the word that we translate judge. All right, the word judge, and we've met this word, I think a year ago or so, is the word krino, K-R-I-N-O, And it is the word that means to separate. So um, we get the word criticize or critique from this word. Crino just means to separate, to sift, to sort. But Jesus is clear about what kind of sifting he's condemning. And this is where understanding the word helps us understand there are two different kinds of judgment. One is good and one is bad. The bad kind of judgment 
from Luke is the judgment that condemns. Remember when he says, do not judge, you will be judged, do not condemn, you will be condemned. That's parallelism, and he's saying the same thing twice. So what he's outlawing is the judgment that condemns. But there is a positive judgment, all right? So the judgment that condemns, and this is so important, so make sure that we don't move on unless you've got it. The good crino is the crino that separates things or ways of living, right? That's wise, that's foolish, right? That's good, that's not great, that's unhealthy, that's healthy. That's, that's, that, we'll call that discernment or wisdom. The bad crino doesn't separate things, it separates people. And that's the difference. Sheep, goats, good, bad, friend, enemy. See the difference? This is really, really important. So yes, next week we're gonna talk about the good discernment, which is where we are invited to sift and categorize things and ways of life. And you know, there, there are places in the church community where if you're invited on the inside of someone's life and you're invited to share your crino, there's a place to do that and we should. Absolutely. We're gonna look first at the bad kind because that's the kind we're all familiar with and we all practice just unconsciously. And so let's spend a little time on bad crino, shall we? Because, and what's fascinating here, is that, and Jesus says stuff like this all over the Gospels, whatever measure you use, it will be measured back. In other words, whatever the standard of judgment that you're using to judge other people will be used against you. And he gives this image that some prosperity folks have just run with, but it's just about um, how you measure things. And so what you would do if you went to the market to buy some grain is they would have something called a metron, which is a, a unit of measure, and they would dump grain into it and then, and then pound it down so that it would settle and then dump some more and then shake it and then dump some more, put a little hole in the middle, dump some more so there was literally not one grain that you could fit any more into this. And then you would dump it into the, 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 if you had your tunic, you would have this, you could like lift it up and they would dump it into your lap. And so the image is, if you're generous with people, God's generous with you. He says this at the end of the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive people who have forgiven you and you will be forgiven. So Jesus constantly reminds us that loving neighbor and loving God are the same thing. There's no, you can't split it. Right, so that's, a, that's why all these debates about social justice and evangelism and those things aren't true debates. I mean, in, in God's economy, loving your neighbor is loving God, end of story. So Jesus invites us to be aware of the condemning judgment. So, um, <laughs> and this, man, this mechanism has existed for a while. All right, let's go to Genesis, boom. It's where it starts. Genesis 2, the Lord God, I don't even know why I was flipping through this because it's right there. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Is there more? And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now look at me. There are so many guesses as to what this is. Some think it has sexual connotations. Some think it has moral connotations. There are a couple of scholars, and I resonate with their work, who suggest that what happened 
when Adam and Eve took the fruit is they entered into a domain that was only God's, namely the domain of judgment. That the, the mechanism of judgment of itself was what the knowledge of good and evil was. Until then, they just simply lived under God's good word. But now they began to judge themselves, right? Because the first thing that happens, next. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, and so they eat it. The eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves. So what's the judgment they made there? They were naked, and naked is what? Right. So there's some thought that the, the knowledge of the tree of good and evil was when we stormed into God's good domain, his proper domain, and we took upon ourselves a mechanism that belonged only to God, namely the mechanism of judgment. And so that we've become little judging machines, condemning all over the place. And we do this without thinking about it. And the tragic thing about Adam and Eve is they were like God already, right? They were his image and likeness. They had a glorious destiny in his good world. But they cut themselves off from the source of life and they became hungry instead. And so now you begin to see, and it spirals all throughout Genesis, the judgments of, and condemning of one another. And judgment isn't neutral in this sense. Judgment is always self-serving. We compare and contrast ourselves to other and then f others and then we feed off the difference. We are constantly, we have a filter on that defines what it is that's good and true for us, and then we're constantly rendering judgments about where we can find more of that good or beauty or truth. Does that make sense? And we do this all without even thinking about it. We are just constant condemners, constant. And crino, remember the bad crino separates people. So it's not just that we're like, oh, that's an ugly car. The bad crino is when you look at someone's outside, their behavior, and make a render, you render a judgment about their worth or about their motives, right? You see somebody who, and their kids are misbehaving, and you automatically, and this is totally hypothetical, go, man, what a crappy parent that is, Right? Or you meet somebody within 30 seconds and you're like, ooh, they want something from me. And sometimes you're absolutely right. But we are constantly, constantly doing this. And so the, the mechanism itself is condemned. It's not just that our judgments are bad, though they are, but the mechanism of judging is what's condemned here by Jesus. Because our judgments are always self-serving. I judge everyone else's behavior, but I judge my intentions. Well, I didn't mean to do that. Right? Anyone else do this when they're arguing with their spouse? I didn't mean to. How well does that defense work when they use it? <laughs> Not so great. It's the reason why I have a, such an easier time picking out someone else's sin than my own. Charlie. He's slowly disappearing. <laughs> All right, any questions on this so far? Whoa, yes, here we go. So I, 
saying. <laughs> All right, man, what a great question. We've always heard, I'll repeat it, we've always heard hate, love, what is it? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Yes, 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 hate the sin, love the sinner, um, which is always felt as just an excuse to hate somebody anyway. Uh, an excuse to try and change them. Oh, good Lord. Okay. Oh, so the next three weeks we're dealing with judgment. All right. The first, this week is the bad. Next week is the good. And then the week after, Jesus says this thing about pearls and pigs. And that has to do with pushing your judgments on other people. And so, yes, we're going we're gonna to capture all of it. But let's talk about that sentiment for a second. Because I don't see a command to hate the sin of others. I see a command to love others regardless of their sin. And as we're going to explore, you cannot judge somebody and love them at the same time. Now, that doesn't mean we're not discerning. That's next week. It just means that we, we, if you're like me, are engaging in a calculus to determine who is worthy of your love and your investment, your trust, your whatever, or your generosity, right? And it's that mechanism that we've got a war against. So even trying to say, I can separate your sin from you, the sinner, to some degree, that's true. We do that with ourselves all the time. I hate some of the things that I do, right? But I still love and accept me. So there's a degree of truth in there, but how it's been used has been to, to place us in a superior position over somebody else to try to either help them or to have an excuse to not help them. So that, that placing ourselves over somebody, that's the mechanism of judgment that Jesus condemns. Does that make sense? Because there's only one who stands over us. No, no one stands above. That's the, the, the thing about the cross, right? A cross-shaped community means we get out of the sin ranking system. And the church is known for its sin ranking system, right? We all know what the big sins that the church preaches against are. And it's just funny that money isn't one of them. Considering how many, how many verses there are about wealth and injustice, you're just like, okay. All right, but let's focus, let's focus on sexual sins of other people. And then you're like, oh, then you're into that trap of ranking, and then you're exactly condemned the way that Jesus says you will be condemned. Yes, is there someone in the back? Yes. Yep. Yes, yeah, so when you see the sin hurting another person, yes, we're, that's next week. All of those places where we do have permission to come in and share our good discernings, the issue here is are we condemning people? That's the bad crino. I'm separating people into categories. It's not separating behaviors, although that gets super tricky. Man, great stuff. And, and by the way, I'm only an expert on the bad crino, okay? So I'm, I can speak to that. No, I mean, I'm working on it. Um, but one of the things I want you to notice is some think the first sin of the Bible was not just the disobedience of eating the frozen fruit, but it was, <laughs> it was invading the proper domain because God is the only one who can love and judge at the same time. The rest of us, have a real hard time doing that. Susie, I saw you approach 
Could we turn the microphone on? One second, Dave said. Thank you. Okay. Um, oh. Why have I heard from some pastors that I have the right to judge because I'm in a place of authority? Oh. <laughs> because they want to excuse how they pastor. So that's why they teach that. There is Thank nothing, you. nothing in the New Testament that says the, the only reason people are given positions of authority is to serve the flock, not to feed off of them. You got it? So you stay freaking away. I'm serious, man. That is awful. That is an awful teaching that has been so abused. Yes. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, okay. First of all, it's widely known we're the smartest church in um, <laughs> Davidson County. We're in Williamson County. Whatever it is. Fine, you're new. <laughs> in all the counties. Middle Tennessee. We are in Middle Tennessee. So, so yes, Jesus does say to the, the, to the apostles, you will sit over the 12 tribes of Israel. But nowhere is that given to us. Right, but, but it, yep, and so the question is, are there other texts that support that idea? Uh, and then I, I would counter with no, what there are just innumerable texts are that we are to live cross-shaped lives, we're expending ourselves for the sake of others, and we cannot do that if we're sitting in judgment of them. Yeah, yes, I, yes the, I think they are. Now, they, they I, and, and if someone were here who bought that, we'd get into a great biblical conversation. I'm just saying, we've seen the fruit of that kind of leadership, okay? We've seen it. We don't need to see any more, okay? <clears throat> Sorry. I mean, they're coming in hot. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. Okay. I'm going to give you two at the same time, because one, I think that you can answer quickly and, and plug our August series real quick. But oh, it's, nice. Um, do you, Sweet. Do you think that the, the fruit tree was literal? Or figurative, and does it really matter? That's oh. the first question. And then um, just answer that and give me a second, because I'm using the Apple Watch, and that's a little Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> that's tough, Susie. Um, <laughs> so we're doing in August, we're doing a series on the Bible. All right? So our fall series is we're doing a, huh? What are we doing right <laughs> That, but we're going to do a whole series on it. Because you guys keep asking great questions. So we're doing a series on the Bible, and then we're doing, as an example of how people misuse the Bible, we're doing a series on Revelation, all right? That's our fall. So a lot of the literal metaphorical stuff we'll get to when we get to genre. What is the genre of the piece of writing we're looking at? Does it claim to be historical? Is it something else? A lot of us read the Bible, and I've used this example before, a lot of us read the Bible as if it were all the same kind of book. But when you go into Barnes and Noble, you remember those? You, there's a fiction section, a nonfiction section, a poetry section, and you read all the books there differently. If you go into a science fiction section, you read that differently than if you go to the science section, correct? This is a Barnes and Noble of ancient literature. And until you're clued in on all the different ways, we just read it 
flatly, as if it were we're reading all the same thing. Well, the Bible says it in English, so it must, this is what it says. But we don't treat any other literature like that. So this is going to be a worthy investment of our time. Because there's a load, a load of questions that we all come to when it comes to the text. Okay, one more. Okay, one more. Um, Sorry, John, you had one, dude. If we are not able to judge others and love them at the same time, how can we keep each other accountable? If, quote, unquote, tough love is a good thing, or is, is tough love a good thing, or something we've made up to justify judging others? <laughs> I'm going to say it again. Smartest church. We are going to talk about that next week. I'm serious. We have a, I knew. I knew. I just wanted to let this nonsense sit there so that we would, and not let any loopholes out. Okay? We are, we are constant judges. And that prevents us from loving indiscriminately and being radically generous and doing the Sermon on the Mount. This is what prevents us from living that kind of kingdom life. And so, so I just want the negative command to sit on its own for a week. And the goal of this morning is that we would just walk out and then clue into how often it's happening. Like, I saw this, there was this, um, oh, no, nah, I shouldn't even share that example. Yes. Yes, yes, a lot of us are clinging to, well, when do I get to? And, and that's because part of what it is to be made in God's image and likeness and part of what it is to be a follower of Jesus is to discern. Absolutely, we don't want to take that away, but you're absolutely right, and that's really insightful. How often, because I feel it too. I feel it too. Oh, so good. One more? Because there is a sermon. Yes, and I think if you if your question didn't get answered, it's because it's it's coming in the in the next couple. Of nice. Weeks. So nice. Um, but this is so without trying to commit judgment, how should I address this anger I have for the wrongdoing, and trade by that has been the, well by what's been released this past week about the SBC. So if I've got anger for the things that have happened this week, and let's throw in shootings as well, because yeah, I think yeah, some of us yeah. are feeling that. Yeah. Um, what do we do without committing judgment? Oh, man. What a great question. First of all, anger isn't the same as judgment. I think, I think there is room in the Christian life for anger. Jesus gets angry. But his anger always drives him to heal or bless or fight for marginalized. Like His anger moves him to do something that's bringing the kingdom. His anger does not move him um, to, um, to hurt or to slander or to destroy. So I think we should be angry. We absolutely should be angry. Absolutely. And we can discern that that is a great evil. And the people who perpetrated it and covered it up should be prosecuted and held accountable in the community of faith. I, I have to work to be able to do that without condemning all of the people involved. And here's the reason, all right? Here's the big, this is the only spiritual practice I can commend to you about this. I, we're gonna get into it next week, but Jesus gives this example about a log and a speck. And the idea is I'm to see your sin 
as a speck compared to the log in my own eye. Now, I still see the sin, but I'm not in a position of superiority over you to talk about that sin. Instead, I literally am the biggest sinner in the room because mine are the only motives, thoughts, motivations that I know of. All I know is your behavior. So I am, I literally walk into every situation or even when I'm sitting across from somebody who is in the middle of a huge confession, what's going in my head is I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm the biggest sinner at this table. Now that doesn't mean, of course, we gently and we come and we come along and we, yes, we tell the truth. The community of God is a community of truth. But for a lot of us, me at the top of the list, it's truth can come at the expense of love. And a lot of these mechanisms are designed to get us out of having to love people. So I'm gonna just wrap this sucker up. Because, I mean, you just, you guys, wow. We explored all the bases. This is wonderful. The way Jesus speaks about this kind of condemning judgment, and it's the judgment that condemns, okay? Um, and that separates people. That, keep that in mind. That's what Jesus is, is talking about. That mechanism of condemning judgment is countered by the practice of agape love. Agape is love without discrimination. It's, it's love, it's when Jesus talks about how the Father loves and he, he pours out the rain and sunshine on the good and evil alike. That's agape love. And that's the love. We're literally to show love the way the Father shows love, indiscriminately. Now, what does that mean? Well, let's talk about the command, love your neighbor as yourself. We hear that as Americans. Well, that's a command first to love myself. And we think that means have self-acceptance and self-worth. That's not what that means. Love isn't a feeling in the Bible. Love is something you do. So how do you love yourself? Simple. How many of you are hungry? Right now. Okay. Some of you are lying. <laughs> ah! Don't judge. Oh, come on. What's that? I said I love oh, he is horrible. <laughs> There's a judgment. <laughs> when we're practicing agape love, the only rendering we make of someone's worth and value is the judgment that they are of unsurpassable worth and they are made in the image of God. That's the only judgment we're allowed to make of them as a person when we're separating people. The cross levels us all, so no one sits in superiority over another. Does that make sense? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, when some of us told the truth about being hungry, what we will do is that we will begin to strategize about obtaining food. Some of us might think, oh, I'm so glad to know there are food trucks after both services, Rob, because <laughs> I'm hungry. Some of us, we're willing to spend money to satisfy our hunger, correct? How do I know you, I love myself? It's, well, well, when I'm naked and clo uh, cold, I clothe myself. When I am thirsty, I find drink. When I need shelter, I go inside, right? I strategize my life to take care of my needs. That's what it means to love yourself. And love your neighbor as yourself just means the same time, energy, commitment, and money you spend on you, spend it on the people who are hungry and thirsty just like you. 
and there's no qualification about whether or not those people are worthy. There is some satanic lie in the church that says the Christian thing to do is make sure that people know you disagree with them before you can show them mercy. That's not mercy at that point. We are to suspend the sin-ranking system. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that there are places where this goes on. We'll talk about it next week. But it means for now, just for now, let it slap us upside the head. That the political figure that you spend all week consuming media about, that person is made in the image of God and is of unsurpassable worth because Jesus died for them, regardless of whether or not you like them. Right? That's what this means. Well, they might take advantage of us. Yes, they took advantage of Jesus. They might think we're condoning sin. Yes, they thought Jesus was condoning sin. The indiscriminate, never-ending love of Jesus that ends with a sloppy, wet kiss is somehow so magnificent. Sorry, that was a Christian song reference. I'm so sorry if some of you don't get that. (laughs) Can only be manifested in the community that practices agape love. And agape love simply says, yes, I'm able to separate behavior from the person, but the only judgment I can have of the person is that they are of unsurpassable worth, that Jesus died for them and they are made in God's image. And I will manifest that agreement with God in how I treat them. So are we angry about what has happened? Yes. Do we demand that people be held to account? Absolutely. Absolutely. But where I go is I want to see bad things happen to those people. And that's where I begin to start treading into the kind of things that Jesus condemns. So, here's what I thought we would do today. (laughs) Let's, well, we did this, oh man, six months ago, and I was like, ah, we should do it again. I'm like, no, I think we need it. Let's go right down the people we're judging. Remember we had this huge list we led a service off with, and we're like, oh my goodness, we are really good at this. I want you to name one person that you judge. Write their name. Now, it could be like my spouse or, you know, if my wife is here later, she could be mysterious if she wants to. Um, It was a joke. Um, But I want you to write their name and then write the sentence, that name is a, that person is a person of unsurpassable worth. And I want you to take the bread and the cup, go to your seat, and then pray blessing over them. And then, if that's hard for you, take the bread and the cup to be reminded of the blessing shown to us while we were still sinners. Yeah, we don't, oh, you good, thank you, Susie. Yeah, we don't need to know the names. And certainly, if there's anything that says Susie Lind on it, we don't, we don't want to know. Yeah, we do pray over them, so we don't want to just, yeah. Privacy. Privacy, not secrecy. I want to give a shout out to Susie Lynn right now as preaching assistant for this one. So if, so, take a piece of paper, write down the, per, like, it, like if you judge Democrats, then write down Joe Biden. If you judge Republicans, write down Donald Trump. Write, write down the class representative. Write down the person that you are just hating to the core of your being. Because we all got them. 
And then just write down, even if you don't mean it, this is nothing about meaning it. This person is made in the image of God and is of, of unsurpassable worth. And then sit down and pray for that person. And then take the bread and the cup to symbolize we're only passing along what we have received. We're not being asked to do something that hasn't already been done for us. Because when it comes to God, we love mercy. When it comes to other people, we love judgment. And so Christ invites us to simply say, as we have received, so we now give. Well, Father, I tell you, um, we just want to let your, we want to let the words of Jesus sort of just hit us. And we want to notice in ourselves all the ways we try to get out of them. And Father, help us to understand, because there, there are nuances here. Help us understand, or would you show us our hearts? I guess that's the thing. Would you show us our hearts? Would you show us how naturally this comes to us? Father, we want to be a people that puts aside the sin ranking system. We want to be a people who puts aside the moral calculus of who deserves to be in or out. We just want to put aside deserving as a category. And so, God, we come to your table hungry and thirsty to be reminded that you've shown us so much love and grace. And God, we ask that you would invite us, compel us, incite our imaginations about what it looks like to live in the reality of giving that to others. So help us, God. This is a, this is a heavy thing to wrestle with. We pray in the name of our Jesus. Amen.